Welcome to Lineouts by Earful of Dirt, bringing you conversations with rugby newsmakers about the greatest sport on the planet. And we're live. Uh, welcome to Earful of Dirt Lineouts. I wonder if I'm going to make this a techniques episode, which uh, we to- totally do with like, coaching stuff. Because um, I have a bunch of stuff from when we first started a couple of years ago that focuses on attack shapes and defense. And maybe, you know, half of this will be all like you know, <laughs> per- periodization and programming for different sports for people to figure out. Um, and, you know, we sort of talked uh, about co- you, Ian, coming on. You can find him at Ian Gibbo on uh, Twitter and Instagram. Uh, I want to say before this last season, I had written a bunch of uh, articles on pathway stuff and someone had mentioned, hey, you know, you should get a MLR strength coach on to talk about, uh, you know, strength and development uh, for as far as like a pathway sort of perspective. And we can dig, we'll dig into that from like, I would say high level age grade and what people should be doing if they're in Um, I would say if they're in the pathway at that point and uh, also maybe what kids should be doing if they're like, I would say close. And if they're not focusing on S and C as things are going on, S and C is becoming bigger and bigger uh, and more developed uh, for younger athletes. And and one of the things I would say probably when I was in high school is that S and C was still, Bare in a general sense, I mean, SNC had reached down to the high school level probably in the you know 1970s, but as far as scientific and pure periodization programming, it didn't get um, it wasn't getting there until I would say in the midway through I was in high school. Whereas now, depending on where you are, um, for and what the school the high school is, at least in the United States, you might have a uh, a strength and conditioning coach that gets as paid gets paid as much as the high school football coach because a he's you guys are pretty qualified right and then but also they cover multiple sports and not just one so they just it, they have to deal with like a, a profile of 20 different sports right so it gets pretty crazy so and now we see sort of this specialization um, into to young athletes which is really uh, I want to talk about that because we're part of like I said are a minute ago, part of this is about a pathway discussion for strength. I got not strength and conditioning. You could say physical performance development. Um, I think since we're all using like high level words these days, same job. So, so, and, uh, but Ian, let's, let's dig in a bit. What like is your sport background? Um, uh, yeah, been born, born and bred in Gloucester in Southwest England, mate. You got no choice. You're, uh, you're born into, into rugby. Uh, so rugby in the winter, cricket in the summer. Uh, that's all my school played. Um, and then obviously been raised in, in and around Gloucester Rugby Club with my family, having heavy connections there. It, it is the only sport. Soccer doesn't play any, any role. Um, and I was lucky enough to play rugby and cricket to a reasonably high level coming through the age grade system at school, playing for like county and then regional and then even some international kind of exposure through the schoolboy system. So very lucky from that point of view and then kind of carried that on in, in my in my career. So uh, had exposure to other sports as a young S&C coming through university with uh, teaching uh, netball and 
uh, and some soccer, um, but very much rugby orientated. So um, let's, I, I guess you, you mentioned before we, we pressed the button, uh, you went to Harper College. So your background as a rugby player at a high level, you played, uh, I guess, I, I don't know, you're, you're older than me. So I'm guessing either in, uh, you know, National One or the championship with the Harper College side, which feeds into which I would say is the de facto academy for Gloucester rugby. Yeah, so um, I mean, I'll, I'll strip that. I never actually played for the Hartbury. I was lucky enough to be a professional athlete straight from school, got signed by Gloucester. Okay, there you go. So, I, was in, I was way back in 1998. So, oh, <laughs> oh, I so this is where so we got to talk about um, the beginnings of professionalism, yeah. like in yeah. England. So. I guess th- this is great. I always love this stuff. So, ninety-eight. So, games professional two two years really at that point, right? So you real real. I don't know because you know the we the game went professional in ninety-five. So every you know, the players that I was growing up watching all of a sudden made professional. They were sat around the office wondering what to do. They're just the club secretary there. Uh, director of rugby didn't really know what they're doing, so they were they were smoking benching hedges and drinking uh, drinking coffee. Um, that was literally how professionalism first started off, and then it got kind of more professional as we were going on. And I had the ex England scrum half Richard Hill, who was in his infancy as a coach, and came on board and kind of transformed everything really. And it, I'd say it took a good until really the the early two thousands before clubs really took on a professionalism to seriously um and part of that was down to what you don't know you don't know <laughs> um and part of it was a lot of overseas guys coming in and adding value so there's a lot of overseas players uh, being signed uh, and then with that came a lot of overseas coaches predominantly uh, Aussies and Kiwis as they always managed to find their way all over the world and let's not forget their rugby royalty I said that was sarcasm, so I have a lot of Aussie and Cuban And, you know, they they kind of said, look, this is how we do things back home. This is how you should do things. And it, it took, and that was great initially, but then it, you know, I would say it was a big, big shift uh, around the Clyde Woodward era uh, of coaching England and brought in a lot of like, English experts, uh, strength and condition from other sports as well, not just uh, not just rugby and then it just kind of blossomed from there and really kind of we kind of came up with like a, an English system of development rather than, oh, this is what the Aussies do, this is what the Kiwis do, we need to do the same. Um, so it, that, took a, a, that took a long time in the UK to kind of get over that. And even now it's still kind of, there's a little bit of a hangover still that everyone kind of looks to the Southern Hemisphere uh, that's the way we should physically depart. Like, well, the, the, the nuances of the game in, in Europe and particularly in the UK is, is very different. Uh, the athlete is different. So, uh, yeah, the early professional era was was kind of suck it and see. Um, a lot the of- best part is, like, I remember talking to uh, Darren Morris, uh, former British and Irish Lion, about, like, uh, that guy. and uh, I was talking to him about, he's, like, uh, literally talking about how he uh, – when the game went professional, he actually made less money. Yeah. And I was like, I, I, 
you know, this this faux amateurism that sort of existed where people just weren't going to look at the fact that, you know, guys were making plenty of cash and had a car and a house. And all of a sudden, well, now it's got to be on that's got to be on the books that could turn into company's house, yeah. which is the IRS of the it's I don't know why it's called company's house, but whatever. It's the IRS of the UK. And you're running corporations and like guys who are making really good wages, you know, in 90, I guess, 93 um, playing amateur rugby yeah <laughs> that was like i remember back in the day obviously uh, gloucester and for those listeners that don't know like gloucester and bath two big championship clubs and historically the biggest rivals locally um and you'd have stories of bath. west country derby yeah massive west country derby. yeah you, you have hear stories of players going in bath and literally being paid in brown envelopes and you know, walking flash cars, suits, and everything else. And then your poor Gloucester boys have been on the building site eating sandwiches and a packet of Walker's crisps, you know, and going to training. It was literally like that. And um, so yeah, so the game went professional, similar to here, really. The game went professional, and everyone thinks, Oh, you're a professional, that means you're earning big money. Well, actually, it's re- the reverse of that because there's so many other costs associated with being professional, and it's not just about paying players. Um, yeah, so, so Darren probably was earning earning more money. And in fact, I think when the game was going professional, the way guys were trying to make up money was by filling in expense forms. So lying about the mileage on their on their club car. And just say, oh no, I've, I've travelled 100 miles there and back to training here, but mate, you live 10 minutes down the road. Cars broke down, I had to buy a bike, so I'm trying to claim that back. So there's, there's a fair old... Uh, history of uh, people filling in mileage claim forms and I think in fact I probably filled in a few of those as well uh, I just it's it's interesting because I mean we're in now the I guess post it, what will become the post COVID-19 pandemic world and you're going to have all these clubs that pay match fees down to like I guess level seven is like what people are trying to explain to me is like so and I'd seen like for year like so the community rugby board, which runs the lower than uh, the championship level yeah. game, um, national one, two, and three have an allowed salary cap of different levels. And then below that it's in theory supposed to be all amateur completely. Yeah. And you have got, you have clubs that were, that are paying guys match fees, um, you know, at level six and level seven, and I'm and the RFU is going now today because you're going to have some clubs go bust because no one's, yeah. no one was able, no one's able to go into the pub at the club and and buy beers and stuff. But it's like I, as an American, it's very weird to think that you could have what is basically beer league rugby in the U.S. at the same level, yeah. and guys instead of I would say paying six hundred dollars a year might to play rugby which is what you know which is what you most people in the u.s roughly have to pay their club dues is about you know six hundred dollars a year depending on and some clubs get people are lucky where they don't pay a dime and good for them you know like sponsorship is very important when i played for fort bliss luckily uh you know the mwr supported the program and we didn't pay dues and we didn't have to pay for fields. We didn't have to pay for lights, which was great. So if you're, if the military club is stable 
and you're in the army or the Marine Corps and the, the club itself is stable. So like you have leadership that is not going to leave for a long time. And I would say uh, we did not at the time. And uh, when I left almost, I wouldn't say I was, I wasn't in club leadership at, at the time because I was leaving. But then six months later, the club captain and the club president both PCSed and the club fell apart. <laughs> Which is, so if you're in an army or a Marine Corps club and your leadership like is run more or less outside of um, active service personnel, your club is going to be able to stick around unless, you know, um, a brigade deploys and half the team is in that brigade, um, which, which happened a lot during, um, I guess the global war on terror is not over, but uh, happened a lot during the height of the GWAT. You would have really good army teams that would just fall apart because, a brigade just left and it's it. So I paid the least amount of money to play rugby when I played on, on an army team and the most. So, but it's just, it's just amazing to see that overseas, like the RFU is trying to figure out why participation is falling. And then I hear about clubs are paying players at a really, really amateur level. And the reason why participation is falling is, is because of those clubs either stop paying players or those clubs fold. And I'm like, cause I mean, I never, that, that I'm, I'm, a, I'm not good for one, <laughs> not good for one. Uh, B it's just, it's just amazing to think that that's what goes on um, overseas. And it's not just in the UK. Uh, you have that in Ireland, you have that in, uh, uh, Australia, you have that in Hong Kong in the Premier League. You have that in New Zealand. You have that in South Africa too. It's just an interesting. It's a global problem because effectively the game goes kind of professional at the top end, which is great. But then everyone else is trying to be competitive and feel, oh, well, we, we can do that as well. So I liken it to, and I've had it both in England and I lived in Wales for 10 years as well before moving to the US and I saw it particularly in Wales where there's so many rugby clubs close together that my village team lost five players because the village next door was paying £100 a game. And if they play four games in a month, that means that they can pay their mortgage. And you're like, well, you can see why they went. But then the rugby club loses that sponsor or the, the guy doesn't want to put money in anymore. And then they come back or they or they give up playing because you think the participation isn't just about being paid and the money transferring between clubs is effectively what happens. Two or three sponsors go in and move clubs every couple of years. But the players, they just fall out of love with the game, mainly because people don't stay behind to watch anymore. There's more rugby. Actually, there's more rugby on TV. There's more things to do. So they'd rather go and stay at home and watch that. They, you know, their kids are playing sport, and that kind of affects everything else. And whereas way back in the day, everything evolved around the local rugby club or the local soccer club or whatever the sport is, but particularly the rugby clubs. And, and now that it doesn't happen because um, there's a lot more competition. And things are more out there. The you know devices and like you know, whether it's computer games, iPhones, iPads, whatever it is, they all take precedent now as well. And it's, it's a real sad kind of state of affairs for for uh, rugby globally. Um, and it's something that, you know, there, there isn't one answer to the problem. Um, and it's, and it, and it, you know, I can see it being an issue here as well, particularly with the MLR and the competition between oh, the MLR is the only rugby going on in America. That's what you kind of led to believe. If, you, if I see a lot of the press that goes out, well, actually it's not. The community game is going to actually be, 
the bedrock of the success of the MLR. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and we're starting to see that. In, you don't have a league. You're starting to see that investment come forward with uh, the newer teams. Uh, Dallas, in fact, today just announced uh, two community development managers, which is yeah. crazy for a new team to yeah. say not only one, but two. We're going to have two people work with um, community rugby, which is great. And, you know, um, obviously you have an SD on your hat. So you've um, now you, I guess, recently have been appointed the uh, performance and skills coach for uh, the San Diego Legion. And we'll, we'll talk about that process in a bit. But San Diego has been pretty integrated into um, community rugby and community events and just getting the brand into the community so people that can so people just see it, which I, I find I found impressive. Not this it, it I think it happened last summer, but the summer before, it was like whatever like major event where you could set up a booth um was like the team the team had you know a tent or a booth at and yeah. were just handing out koozies and stuff and like that's that's grassroots marketing right there. And that's I think that's really important. Yeah. Um, that is important. I think that the the connection with the the community is massive across the whole of the, the whole of American game. And how you do that, you know, what San Diego are doing, to what Houston are doing, to what Utah are doing successfully well. And now Dallas coming on board is really trying to grow that community game and bring it from the grassroots up. Is you know, and I think those clubs are talking to each other as well and sharing knowledge, and that is vital. It's no good us sat in our San Diego bubble going, oh, look at what we do, you know, and, and you know, not sharing that knowledge with LA and not sharing that knowledge with Seattle or, you know, moving across into, into Texas. And I think it's, you know, we should be sharing best practice and what we've learned, some mistakes that clubs are making. And because ultimately we want the league to be successful, but more than that, I think we want rugby to be successful in the US. And that, that it's not just the MLR. It's everything, men's and women's. And I think that's completely important. Yeah, it's something I talk about, uh, I guess, say, quote, unquote, passionately a lot. I was like, um, people that think that, uh, hey, this is a 20-year project, just like the MLS was a 20-year project. But there is a difference in that the market conditions are completely different. Because I say this, I, I have this anecdote. In 1994, there were a million children playing soccer. I was one of them. Today, when when MLR started, there were under thirty thousand children, and by third children I mean eighteen and below. So high school, like yeah. so, so minor people who haven't reached the age of majority. So eighteen and below, there are under thirty thousand that play rugby in the United States. So MLR is in a position to where it also has to create its own market, which is very unique and is a struggle. And it's something that I think a lot of teams, as they've gotten their roots into the community, right, are starting to deploy more resources towards community-based activities. Because like I say, um, you know, for every child, you usually have 10 parents. So, or not 10, 10 parents, but two, two parents. And a 10, 10 would be great too. That's 10, that's 10 <laughs> fans. But like for every child, um, usually they come with two parents. And so that means you get three fans. Um, so if you are dug in and doing community clinics that are, either free or low cost all the time and people do those things, you know, and then if the, if the community clinics are being done by their, by the players or the coaching staff um, of the team, you're like, wait, that's the, that, that guy plays on Saturday and Sunday. 
you know, like, so that's, you get this sort of human interaction. And it's something that I think rugby has been very, I guess, as far as uh, uh, a mainstay of the amateur game is that how connected and how approachable rugby players are, because usually after, usually after every game, um, fans are able to come down from the stands right now um, and literally interact with um, the players, which I think is great. And that's, that's, like everywhere. Yeah. Not just not just here. That's like everywhere, except usually except the big test matches. Yeah, because um, obviously there's rules around that. And then there's you know some of the club grounds in the premiership in the UK or in England and in the Pro 14, etc. That you know there's certain times where you're not allowed on the field, but eventually they, you know, they will they do get onto the field and everyone's kind of open and they get some time. I think that's important because you know, I know when I was a, a kid growing up, going to watch Gloucester play, and you know, it had all the top players come, and even, and I just walk onto the field, I get autographs, I get my photograph taken, I get to hold the ball that they play with, and it's really aspirational because you go home and you remember those things, and I I still remember those things now, and I think that we you know we have to work better with the community clubs on that, um, and to, and to maintain it because. You know, if we take games to, to bigger stadiums in the future, we still need to retain that kind of those core values of, of rugby, where you know we are kind of part of the community, and it's vital that stays that stays kind of central to what we do. So let's dig in um, more. I wouldn't say necessarily into the complete um, periodization bit that I want to talk about, but um, your first uh, opportunity as a professional strength and conditioning coach. Um, I guess major piece is uh, with with the Saracens. So, how did like obviously you know Harper College and you know playing professionally? How did you know moving into because um, trying to figure out what players are going to do? Um, then the next you know the next target is yeah. always a difficult thing, and I, I can really be empathetic about that with with athletes because i i would say i wasn't an ath i wasn't a professional athlete but i was a soldier and transitioning out of the army is kind of the same thing and uh just trying to figure out what you're trying to do next and so for you like what made you think um you know obviously studying strength human i guess human performance that's what we're saying now human performance in uh in uh in college and stuff what made you want to like while you were playing when it came time to, you know, take off the boots where you're like, Hmm, I want to stay involved in rugby and I want to do this specific thing. Yeah. I think, um, well, one, like I, my parents, I've had my parents where said that you can't just play rugby. So, you know, I, I went and got my personal training qualification and I was training playing rugby and working in the gym during the week and any any off days and week you know Sundays when we didn't, when we weren't playing and that kind of instilled that oh actually I really enjoyed like coaching and helping people and then I also did my rugby coaching qualifications. When I was coaching in the community, I was coaching A grade age grade sides. Um, and then kind of I was actually playing in what is the equivalent of the championship. Um, and I was like, what do I do? And I went to speak to some of my ex-coaches and they were like, you make a really good S&C, you, you, what do you think? And I was like, oh, yeah, that could be a good gig. And then one of my ex-coaches was actually at Hartbury, uh, at Hartbury College, so I went and spoke to him, a guy called Andrew Stanley, who's been involved 
playing well with Gloucester now and his coach Worcester previously. Uh, him and Sean Holly, the great Sean Holly, who's now a commentator, uh, they said, look, come to Hartbury. Um, we can kind of sort out uh, a, a kind of study and coaching gig. Um, and you can come and work under some good SNC coaches here. So I did that. Um, so I was kind of studying and coaching the, the the rugby team as well. And then kind of got mentored by the Gloucester uh, head of strength and condition, a guy called Mike Anthony, who ex-Canterbury uh, ex or, sorry, Crusaders, uh, ex-All Blacks, SNC, uh, is now the head of performance for, head of high performance for New Zealand rugby. So it was great to be mentored by him. I was mentored by another guy called Ed Archer, who used to be Gloucester's SNC, was my SNC coach there. So I had some really good people to learn off and talk to. And just basically, I was just coaching every day, which kind of accelerated my development. Um, and then I thought, yeah, I know this is the path I want to go down. But it was never just SNC. I was very, very kind of interested in the coaching arm as well. And I could see that with the way that, that, uh, that Mike was coaching. He'd get involved with his skills. He'd run this. So I thought that, that could be a niche for me. And I studied, the, studied more coaching than I did actually uh, kind of human performance and really got interested in the coaching process. And then just basically worked my nuts off writing letters because back in the day, email was just a new thing. Back then. So it was like writing letters and saying, you know, is there an opportunity? And the guy at Saracens was like, hey, why don't we meet up and have a chat? So a guy called uh, Craig McFarland, who has actually done two America's Cup campaigns, is now living here. He worked with Oracle Team USA. Um, and he was like, look, come on board at Saracens. What do you think? And I got offered a job, so I took it. Um, and that was it. It would never look back. And it was a great environment to, to learn in. And I'm very fortunate, the fact that I had that rugby playing background. But it doesn't guarantee success. It just pushes the door open slightly but it's going to work my nuts off to, to create it so. so you work with I mean so we, we digging into Saracens being like I guess the breakthrough peer, um, for you as a as an SNC coach and but you basically take the same role with the Scarlets so I would say how was coaching at Saracens um, similar um, because obviously uh both teams are playing to, I mean, the way this works, it's sort of like soccer for the soccer fans out there. You're trying to compete in Europe all yeah. the time. And the teams that don't qualify for either the Champions Cup or the Challenge Cup, at least in the Premiership, are usually getting relegated. So yeah. you, you don't want to be you don't want to be that team. So, you know, obviously Saracens, um, notwithstanding the salary cap abuse that is sending them to the Championship. But, uh, you know... Like during your time, you obviously competed um, like towards the pointy end of the Premiership and um, the year, I guess, the, Heine the Heineken Cup again. Um, yeah. And so, I guess, what was the same and what was different? Because both teams competed, uh, you know, in 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 Europe and in their respective competitions. Except the the only difference is one isn't going to get relegated for for for, for poor for. for yeah, <laughs> poor performance. Yeah. Um, and one would. So I guess what was similar between Saracens? Obviously, your environment is different because of coaches. But as far as, um, I I guess we could talk about that environment too. But like when it comes to players, 
Um, like, how did you deal with players differently? Because I'm guessing you had, there's a little bit, um, I wouldn't say less hunger. I wouldn't say that about like professional athletes, but there is a little bit difference in attitude when you're not going to get relegated every year. Um, yeah, you, if you perform poorly. Yeah, you'd be surprised. I think uh, the difference of working in the the, well, the, the the Gallagher Premiership, as it's now known, and then working in the the, the, uh, the difference is that you actually get a couple of weekends off. <laughs> um, that's about the only difference. The players are hungry. The, the, the kind of the Scarlet's environment, you know, we had kind of like 15... 15 Welsh internationals, current Welsh internationals, a couple of British Lions there, uh, yeah, Scottish captain when I was there, John Barkley. So, you know, you are talking like high-level athletes. They want to perform week in, week out. Uh, everything uh, everything in the Pro 14 is geared around Europe. Effectively, you want to get into that Champions Cup spot because obviously it's more revenue um, and, that you, and players want to be on the best stage. Uh, and if you want to get selected for Wales, which is, again, everyone wants to play for their country, that you need to be playing in the, 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 the top end of that league and you need to be performing and effectively getting into the knockout stages of Europe. So, um, and the Scarlets is traditionally, you know, they're, they're a powerhouse of Welsh rugby, you know, going way back into the, the, the kind of the 70s, you know, and I was very aware of that. Um how you dealing with players because they're going off and they get extra kind of preparation with the with with Wales and you know that's a very different kind of thing to what we would get in back in England. But the job is the same. You're having to build relationships. You're having to make sure that players have been developed in the right way and managed in the right way, uh, and basically being able to perform on match day to the best of their ability continually week after week. Um, with the bigger picture being that you could afford to. Uh, look at the the years pro or the seasons kind of program in a different light because you knew that okay if we were playing if Wales were playing in the Six Nations you know that you will lose your players you lose up to fifteen players out of your squad so you didn't have to manage them as as much and then you'd bring in a, a young proper youngsters that you could develop because the pressure is almost off because you're not playing on those international weekends so a very kind of very different, but very the same. It's, it's really strange. To, it's strange for people that are in it to understand it. Um, but it's similar to, I oh, like it to like the NFL. You're not going to rele- get relegated from the NFL, but every player is busting a ball and every yeah. coach is busting a ball to yeah. win on game. When you're, I think when you're at the pointy end and people talk about um, players who are uncoachable or they have a bad attitude – uh, you know, at this point in life, I don't really believe in the the lack of coachability of a person no. because if they're talented enough to be signed onto a professional team, then that means they were coached at some point and somebody got through to them. And I don't care. Like, you, so you just – everyone's different. And that's what I think you learn as a leader and as a coach is like, um, you know, our philosophies change. Um, all the time. And I think coaches today are better than coaches of yesteryear, but coaches, I think for even the toughest nails types know when they're dug in that certain players are motivated differently. Um, so I, I guess my question is like, you know, 
you know, dealing in, I listened to some different podcasts for, you know, people talk about like integrated performance coaching and, you know, some like there is, you know, I guess with us, it was focused on Australia and be like, we don't need all these directors of performance. I was like, guys, director, like the reason why it's, he's a director of performance and not just head strength and conditioning coaches. He got a raise. I'm just, I'm just saying like, it's like the reality is, is like the role is sort of the same, except you may have some assistance with you if you're a director, right? And you're still doing performance and strength and conditioning coaching, and you're still working with whoever the SNC coach is above you. In this case, like the Wallaby strength and conditioning coach, if you're trying to integrate. So I guess you had to deal with that too. And you just meant you sort of talked about that, but how, I guess, how was it different, um, you know, dealing with England players um, and the SNC coach with England mm-hmm. to make sure guys were, um, I guess physically prepared enough because I I mean, you, you see this today where, you know, Eddie Jones is just known for, you know, bollocking dudes. Um, the first few times in the past as well. It's like first few days, like first few days of camp. It's like, you know, but I think, you know, if Gary gold listens to this, I know he's done it too. Like basically the first thing guys do when they show up to Eagles camp is a Bronco. And I remember listening to Aj McGinty talk about, he's like, you know what? Um, so uh, we had a Bronco the first day at camp and, uh, and I was the second to last person to finish. And then like, it was a, it wasn't really a joke. It was like, wait, you're like in pretty good shape. You're pretty fast on the pitch. And the first person to finish last was, was uh, Paul Lasica. And it's kind of funny because now this was a couple of years ago, but now if you look at Paul Lasica, he has gotten so lean from his football playing days. Like, but he is still a big man. Yeah. He's a big dude. He's getting looked after well in uh, at Quinn's with a good friend of mine, as long as the SNC coach. So, yeah. I think we, at Saracens and all the clubs, even now, are still well connected uh, at, at Saracens and, and other clubs in the, in, the, in the Premiership. That England and the clubs have a re- the SNC staff have a really good relationship, and they share a lot of knowledge going both ways. Uh, going into camp and going uh, and exiting camp, information is shared both ways, so we know what the player has done going into an England camp. We will provide that information. Similarly as well, they would provide information to us on an ongoing basis about injury status coming out of camp and what and kind of what they've done in camp and how they've performed. So we can manage them going coming back into, into the club environment. Um and then you would have the, the S and C staff coming around to the clubs as well at certain points. I mean, back in the day when I was at Saracens, we had a guy called Calvin Morris who now works with World Rugby and he would come in and just be like our assistant for the day. And it was great because, he, you know, he'd just see the whole programme, see what we're doing, both from academy level and then going through to the senior team. So he had a lot of information sharing. Similarly with Wales, we'd have the same. So the Scarlets, we would, again, provide that two-way street. We'd have the S&C staff come in. Um, a good friend of mine, Adam Beard, you know, he's head of performance for Chicago Cubs. Uh, he, his, him and his staff would come into our environment and they would literally share information with what they want, what we're trying to do. And more so with Wales, because the clubs have a, a stronger kind of bind to the union. 
that it would be we would like you to do prepare our players this way and that's kind of what happens um and you know, you, you share a lot of uh, kind of like technology and you feed in a lot of kind of uh sports science data into into the union off the your weekends game and your training week so the athletes get looked after kind of seamlessly and they get looked after very well um it certainly wasn't the case back in the day um it's something here in the states that you know that that information is starting to flow between Gary and his staff and and the, and the MLR clubs. I know going into the, the, the 219 World Cup, there's a lot of information being shared through myself and Hugh Bevan, who ran the, the S&C for, for, the, for the US team. So I think it's getting better. And I just think you just have to you, it's put egos to the side. You want the player to perform to the best of their ability. And you have to kind of put that your ego to the side and just be willing to share and have that two-way conversation. Um, you know, the I can give you know what I do is no different to what my mate is doing down in Nola. Right, we're doing pretty much the same thing. Um, we use probably the same ingredients, but we just make the cake in a different way, and that's that's essentially what, what we do. So, um, now I need to like get Ed on a podcast talking to talking about getting Ed on a podcast is like it's like pulling teeth. Yeah, you probably you need about three hours of Ed. I was just speaking to him earlier. <laughs> Ed's great. Love it. it's like he's uh you know, he's he's gone through some stuff in the past couple of years just personally, where he's like, you know what, I almost died, literally. And he's just like I was like, I've never seen such a man with broad shoulders with abs and a great story about Ed. So we had a lot of conversations on Twitter and, and so on on social media, like way back in the day when I was back in the UK and then uh, we've been talking and said, oh, I'm in Seattle he goes, oh yeah we play you guys in a couple of weeks can't wait to meet up and literally I walked onto the field for our warm-up he comes hobbling over and he gives me this great big bear hug now, I'm, you know, I weigh, you know, I'm, not, I'm not a small guy but this guy just came wrapped his big bear hug on me and uh, I was like you're right mate he goes oh yeah my Achilles is wrecked you know I've just been lifting heavy but I'm still squatting and <laughs> the complete legend and he's running a really good program down in Nola oh, yeah. yeah so and then so I guess my, my one of the things that I like about MLR is the league and the ownership recognize I guess the need for more or less a short season now some of those players do not play a short season some of those players after they're done go down and play the minor 10, which is also a short season. So if they're not like selected for international duty with any of the, I guess if they're Pacific Islander, if they're, or if they're just Kiwis that also play in the U S if they're not selected for international duty, okay. 26 games isn't too much. What I sort of have like a problem and I I am coming at this from like an American standpoint and you can sort of like lead me through this. I think, you know, world rugby has a cap at 32 games for professional players. I think that is a lot. And when we get into it, like you have the premiership season because of the way the international windows work, they interrupt the the, the domestic seasons for, for the club game. And yeah. so what you have is the premiership season or the top 14 season or the pro 14 season ending in like traditionally end of May. Guys get three weeks off, and then depend. Well, so, some guys get more, but but then you have clubs starting like 
preseason, quote unquote preseason, three or four weeks after the season's over. And from a traditional American standpoint, um, just mental health and all that stuff, since we're digging into that, is having a long off season, I think, is very important for personal and then performance development. Because if you look at, you know, guys in the NFL or guys in the um, in the NBA, NHL, MLB here is that guys do a lot of strength and conditioning on their own in the off season. When the only thing that the two things that they're doing is I would say sipping Mai Tais on the beach and lifting. Yeah. Like that, those are the two things that are on their sort of minds and you get a lot of like, I think you get gain a lot of physical performance and development not needing to focus specifically on high your high skill game the entire time. So my question is, I, got, I guess I got, I got two questions, is how do you deal when you – because you worked in, in that environment, how do you deal with such a long season? A, I mean, guys are going to – I would think guys are cranky when they come in for preseason because they only got a month off, you know? And then how do you deal with – um, as a, an SNC coach, one of the things I, people used to use in, in SNC a long time ago, and I guess some, some people still do, is maintenance. So I guess per- periodizing guys to peak at a certain p- portion of the season mm-hmm. and then also doing sort of, I guess, a, a maintenance piece and then dealing and then not working around injuries, but supporting recovery of injuries over a 10 month, 11 month season. Yeah. Well, you speak to any SNC in, in Europe and they'll go, Oh, it's a grind. And you know, it's, it's kind of a roller coaster, but it's a great environment to be in. Why we get into get into it. I mean, there's two kind of streams. There's one is that the guys are generally all play. If you're not an international player, you probably get about five to six weeks off. And that'll be, dependent on how much game time you've had during the season, if you've gone in for surgery, if you're having any cleanups. And then, you know, the staff will, you know, will, will be there and we'll start to drip feed players back in. So there's not everyone coming back in at the same time. So it's very individual. Um, and we do that really well. And it's got better over over the years and, and kind of work uh, with both coaches, medical teams and S&C to kind of pull all that together. Um and it's important that we take a hand on that, you know, make sure guys are receiving adequate care um, through their through any rehab, make sure they can kind of uh, maintain their athletic qualities, uh, that they're not diminishing too much so that when we do go back into to a rugby kind of uh, phase that they don't break down. Um, and it's to, to build on those athletic qualities and improve them as, as, a, as an athlete. So... Uh, I mentally players, you know, do obviously they complain about coming back in, but then they complain when they're away. So uh, I get it from the player's point of view, but um, you also have a responsibility as a as a as a as a staff, as a performance staff, to make sure that you're taking player welfare uh, into consideration. And you know, Dylan Hart has brought a, a book out recently around it, um, and you can see that you know. The greatest, the greatest quote is uh, from Eddie Jones. He goes, "Mate, you fucked." Yeah. <laughs> like, right, and I think that's there's like there's I get where he's coming from. I, I've seen players go through it, and 
we have to do, we all have to do a better job in terms of structuring the season right. It's not right that an international player would end up being exposed to nearly 60 games. Okay, because you've got training on that as well. It's how you program your training. So if you go and fall noise on a Tuesday in training, that's a game. You've just come back off a game on, on Saturday. So there's, there's that's slowly improving. And if you think that rugby has only really been professional for 20, 20 odd years, so it's still learning. Um, and the, we're learning what the science is telling us now to marry that up and put a program together. You're getting now the first kind of, the first and second wave of truly professional coaches who have studied coaching that understand that the body can only take a certain mode and we're getting more information on that and um but there's a really fine balance in that that you know effectively these players are going to war on a weekend so you need to prepare them for that it's how we do it um so i think there's there's a long way to go um, but we are we are getting there in terms of putting together proper kind of structured programs that, that holistically look at the, the rugby athlete, not just an SNC point of view. It's looking at the, the technical, tactical, the mental, and the physical, and bringing all that together. And that is getting better because the knowledge is getting better, and we're sharing a lot more. So I think players coming in, you know, it's very individualised, and when they get access to the to, to, to pre-season again uh, and that that is kind of periodized for want of a better word in terms of what they would do in the first couple of weeks back not just getting the guys in and running a bronco on day one why fitness test on day one they haven't you know they haven't really been doing a lot why would you then go and expose them to a fitness test on day one speed testing on day one <laughs> get them back in the training environment again you know let them put their Mai Tai down, let them get back into to some training, and then we can start to, to fitness test and monitor from there. So um, the players do get looked after, and you know, it's something that we're going to have a challenge with in the MLR as we go through as well, particularly now with a long layoff. Is, uh, and they get, they get long layoffs right from season to season. So it's how we manage that and still develop these players because ultimately they need developing. Um, so... Is, is it's not an exact science and it's, it's, you know, the puzzle is all over the place and we have to bring all these pieces uh, into into the mix and put them in the right places. So we, so that digs into, I guess, you know, how do you, like, you know, long season in your background there, but then you also, you know, you come into um, working in with national teams, uh, mm-hmm. first with Kenya Sevens and then, uh, U.S. Women Sevens and then U.S. Women Fifteens with uh, Richie uh, Walker and Pete. How do how do I forget names of people I talk to on a basis? It's, it's horrible. But uh, and uh, and Pete Steinberg, who I work with um, all the time now. But like, how putting up with Pete? Fair play. Oh yeah. So, uh, you know, what is, I mean, the difference, um, I mean, I, I, I guess partially the, the style of athlete you have to deal with in sevens, mm. oh, I guess, what is the biggest difference? I mean, moving from, I guess, an environment where you had all the resource, not really with, I think the environments, uh, that Chola Vista is, is much different than probably the environment you had in Kenya. So I guess I'm making an assumption here, but what was like the difference between coming from an environment where you basically had 
mostly everything you needed to do, like as far as resources, weights, nutritionists, nurses, doctors, and all that stuff to a, a smaller union that, um, you know, today struggles to pay its players. Um, like, you know, you're going, what was a, the, the precipice of, you know, just wanting a change and obviously competing on the world series, you get to get a lot of, um, cool traveling opportunities out of that. I'm sure. But, uh, but you know what, you know, you know, you go down to that environment, how difficult is it to, you know, not deal with the players, but to facilitate those players because, you know, they're not in the same circumstance as the players that you um, coached in the UK. Yeah. And like, you know, the opportunity to join Kenya Sevens and, and kind of have that international exposure in, in a different kind of, uh, a different field working in Sevens is something that I, you know, one was too good to turn down. So taking that role was uh, was interesting, and I think, and then obviously then going into uh, into the, the, the women's sevens environment uh, with, with the US, like the it just strips everything right back to the basics of coaching. Like you can have all the bells and whistles you want, but unless you get the big rocks in place, like good communication skills writing good programs, coaching the shit out of everything every single day uh, and talking to players and coaches and just traveling around in a bag. It, it, it strips everything back like, and trying to think like, what's the most, what's the most bang for buck I can get. So we don't have a lot of money. So do we look at GPS? Well, I don't need a GPS unit to tell me if a training session has been good or bad or a player's done something, done too much or done too little. It just, it, I just need to ask better questions. I need to trust my coach and I more. I need to work more with the coach. Um, and I think it just teaches you to get back to basics because we kind of, in S&C sense, we've lost the art of talking and communicating and kind of relying on the human side of things. Uh, we went down the track of rabbit hole of, oh, we need all this science. We need all this tech. Um, but we never, you know, we forgot to trust our coach and I. Got to work on the basics of communication. Um, so one of the things um, I talked to you, uh, a distance coach I have for triathlon, and like when it comes to feedback, he's like, I don't really care about what the data says because the data doesn't lie to me. It's like I need the qualitative feedback after the session put into the dang journal so I know how you're feeling because I know what your watch says, I know what your bike computer says. I don't know what you're you're saying if you just leave it blank and if you leave it blank then i can't do my job yeah no exactly and i think you know then obviously coming into to the u.s environment and dealing with with you know at chulo is great you know we had everything like you know we've got access to everything but again it's just it's bang for buck like what do we need to function well like oh we've got access to all these other things but actually we can't plan our training week properly at the moment we need to plan that properly. And that was me and Richie sitting down and going through what a good training program will look like for the individual player, but then the global viewpoint leading into a tournament on tour, where on tour you can't take everything. You've just got one bag. And then working with the, the sports medicine staff. And it, it's it's great to work with a smaller staff. And it's funny because now, obviously, with COVID and everything around the world, 
Um, and Eddie said it as well that you've got to have smaller staff now because teams are going to strip back because they can't afford to have big staff again. So instead of having a staff of 25, you have a staff of 10. And you know, in the MRI, you think you probably have a staff of three or four of you. And I think it's great. It, it was a really good learning environment for me. Um, I went, you know, the S&C role, both in sevens and with women's 15s, I was on my own. And so it was, you know, it was really, you know, I was responsible for the team's performance and looking after, particularly in the World Cup, looking after like 27 athletes and some staff as well. And you just, it just teaches you to, to kind of be better at your planning, uh, be more organized, um, and, and effectively just is more of a better way, just know your shit and, and get it done. And, and I think it was, it's been a really good learning environment. and. I've learned a hell of a lot about coaching. I've learned a lot about myself and I'm a far better coach for it. You know, staying at home, working in a professional club, you know, I was head of S&C that I would have three staff, you know, I'd be looking at this. I probably, I wouldn't be on the grass as much. And um, I, don't, I think I just enjoy that coaching process. And it's something I want to feed in and develop within an MLR setting and bring these coaches up and expose them to coaching and and, and you kind of not lose sight of the fact of why they coach. It's not to sit in front of a laptop. You know, it's to go out there and coach and communicate with players and the coaches. Yes. So when specifically sevens, before we get into the women's 15 stuff, because I think that's a little bit different because of the environment that um, women's 15s in general was until recently, but is still sort of – the deal with women's 15s at the yeah. national team level, but some unions are able are resource, starting to resource their women's 15 programs a little bit differently, which is great for the game in general. But on the seven side, so obviously power and performance is a big part of, you know, 15s when it comes to um, your 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 tight five and maybe I guess your tight eight. So all up front and then you know, centers, like the most centers are big guys these days. So, but I, I would say with sevens, you're dealing with a lot of um, wing players and I would say loose forward types. So what is the difference? Like, I guess, you know, developing, um, you know, speed and quick recovery because if you, I mean, famously you, we get to watch um, you know, the replays where World Rugby has the tracker of yeah. Carla Niles or Dan Norton or Perry mm -hmm. Baker where they just take the ball down and they go, right? Yeah. So how do you deal with developing or maybe not developing but supporting um, the speed that players already have and, you know, getting, in a sense, getting them more powerful or just getting them in a space where they can recover and play, you know, seven minutes at a time at such pace yeah i think it's what well, you think is complicated it's actually very simple so if you think it's like you know you're not gonna you're not gonna run your car on with no gas you're gonna keep topping it up right and that's effectively what you do with your with your sevens athlete um you them high speed running during the week you ex you micro dose that high speed uh, and some high-speed accelerations and repeated speed work during the week. Um, just enough to keep topping up the, the tank um, and then letting them go on the weekend and in, into tournaments. So 
Uh, it's about microdosing. It's about making sure that you maintain their athletic qualities and don't let them diminish. So you're not going to sit someone like Carly down or just take the women's sevens. You're not going to sit Chris Thomas down and Naya Tapa down and go and Chatter Amber and go, sorry, girls, you're not running today. It's no, I want you to, to run here. We need to do two, three sets uh, of three accelerations over 20 meters. And if they do that once or twice a week at top speed, then those athletic qualities that they've worked so hard to get are, are still going to be maintained. Uh, and then, you know, in windows outside of tournaments, then you can start to develop those athletic qualities. So, again, working on speed, developing parts of their speed. Is it acceleration? Is it top-end speed? Is it change of direction speed? Um, and kind of recognizing when those opportunities are. Um, and it, it's the same in 15s. So you would do exactly the same in 15s. So um, the, the, the premise is that you just keep topping up the tank. You just keep exposing them to those, those uh, high-speed situations, but not too much. And, you know, I would say a good, a good coach, a speed coach that I, I work with, and, and he's far better expert than I am, Les Spalman. Now he say, I always say to him, Les, when, how many sessions do we need in a week to maintain speed? And he goes, one session, 30-minute session. Make sure they get some accelerations. Make sure we get some jumps in. You know, okay, that's great. I can fit that into my training schedule. Um, so it, you actually, you know, when you, when you think about that, it's very, very simple. Um, the, the hard challenge is when you're kind of trying to talk to players and get the buy-in from the player that this is right for their body. So it's like saying to, to someone like Naya or Cheta or Nicole or Alev and going, hey, girls, we're just going to pull you back a little bit. We're going to give you a, a, you know, a 30-minute top-up session. And they're like, yeah, but I want to do more. I want to do more. And you're like, you have to keep, you know, you're almost pulling, pulling them back and, I used an example during my time with the sevens leading into the 15s World Cup where I split the group up and, you know, I'd send off our racehorses. They'd go and do some speed work and then I'd have the engine room, which was all our forwards, doing a different session, all on the same field. And, you know, it's tr and they really brought into it and it's trusting them to, the, you know, they can go away and be responsible for their own development as well. And you know, those kind of things, were, and that's where it comes back to the communication piece again and, and understanding them as people and, and having that relationship with them that they trust what you're doing is, is, is good for them. And they can feel it as well. They're hitting tournaments in you know, full noise and, and, and tearing, a, tearing a house down. So that's important and they get that feedback. So. And then, um, so you, you talk about things sort of being the same but this is where things get different is um as the when you you know lead role for snc coach for the women's 15 mm -hmm. is so you have your your group of sevens players that sort of i guess drop into the women's 15s because i know you still sort of have like three or four um under rob kane but i know that pete um liked to lean on the sevens program a lot specifically because of the high level athletes that you get, but also because as he used to say, as he says, he's like, they're the most professional athletes you have. So you well, use them. Yeah. You know, if you can use them, you use them and you know, they contribute. I mean, if you look at the, the, the women's 15s at the 2017 world cup and how many of the current core of that sevens team 
contribute like played a lot of games during that during that world cup is a lot so in so how do you i guess not work around but provide training and support for all of the women that are playing amateur rugby in the united states because that's a little bit different because they're in an amateur environment they have to make all the all the time count and make and you know just like i you know like you i guess in a sense you have to make the time to train yourself yeah you know right like you're like it so for them they have to make the time to train for both rugby and their snc part so that mm-hmm. they can stay fit throughout the season but also be fitted enough when camp comes in because camp is going to have a lot more conditioning than say i would probably say the men's team now has because of the mlr environment right yeah. so they're at a specific threshold and during women's training camp i would i'm suspecting not knowing but i mean i'm thinking just based on conversation is that there's a lot more fitness being done because the environment is a lower intensity um that they're in back at i guess back with their clubs yeah i think well it's certainly in, tw- in 20, 2017 we 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 had a, a very kind of structured kind of format where we would do a lot of conditioning with our rugby. Um, it, it was a lot, but I think I, when I came on board, you know, I talked to Pete and the coaching staff and I could see what was going on around America. You know, we were looking at providing remote programming and, you know, allowing the girls to go away and trying to fit that in around their work. And then they come into camp and, and what have you. But, I kind of went. The, I went the other way with it. I said, "Well, let's not worry necessarily about about them and what they're doing outside of our international window because we we weren't actually we only we were only playing Canada in the Canams and then we were going into a World Cup camp." Was there? Went to, that was the the Saturday game at Chula Vista was the first Test match ever, men's women's I had ever been to, right. and it was it was kind of cool because like um, it was the closest international game to me that I like every, cause when I was in the army, there was the two rugby weekends. I went to the last one, which was a triple header, but it was like, could never go to certain things because I was in the field or something, or I was elsewhere. And it was like, finally, you know, I was living here in Arizona and I was telling my girlfriend, I was like, let's go to San Diego for a weekend and then watch some rugby. And it's like, so it's, you know, we did that. Uh, what was it? The super series. What yeah. was that? That was, Summer of nineteen now, geez, that's yeah. that's it's been a long time. Thank you, COVID. Um, yeah, I think that. So I went the other way, and, I, and then we brought them into camp and really kind of up the ante from our training. And we we were lucky, Pete. You know, he was great. We we had a, a good solid kind of eight weeks before we even left for Ireland, where we could do a lot more rugby activity because these girls weren't getting exposed to to, to even rugby. Activity. Uh, good rugby coaching necessarily um, and we had a very kind of uh, deliberate plan in place that when we were going to go and hit game one in the World Cup that we would be we would be on fire and then we could really strip back during the World Cup so during the World Cup we were literally we had a game every four days um, but leading right up to, to the tournament we went hard right up to kind of like game one and then we stripped everything back we were literally training once a once a week between games and that was a very like almost like a captain's run but still exposing them to things like speed and power work so 
um, and we didn't suffer any injuries, which allowed us to really kind of go through and, and have a good tournament. But I, I, I know now that they have kind of a lot more fixtures for the women, which is great news. And I know that they do program remotely for them. And here in San Diego, I joined in with a couple of sessions uh, with, with Kate Zachary. Um, that it's the, the biggest issue that I have is that these girls need expertise. It's no good on the ground. So it's no good. You know, I can write the best program in the world and send it to somebody. They look at it on paper, but hey, how do they know if that's a good squat? How do they know that you know, they're running at their maximum speed? So I think that what, the, what needs to happen is they need to have better coaches on the ground with them because what they're doing remotely is great, but to take it to the next level, they need guys on the ground. They need guys there uh, monitoring them, what they're doing, actually coaching these, these girls. Um, so it's a, it's a very different kind of, uh, it's a different piece. And I took the attitude of coming into the women's national team with the, with the, with the World Cup on the horizon. That I'd wait till they get into camp. I'd then kind of, uh, I'd physically uh, monitor them and find out where they're at. And then we put a, a, a plan in place and that worked for me. And I had a very, if I was going to be maintained in, in that role leading into this next World Cup, I would have built on that with the, with the, with the core group of players. And I believe, yeah, definitely those sevens girls transitioned really well into the 15s, but that was because I was looking after them in the sevens. And then I knew what they were capable of in the 15s environment so we could manage them out of the tournament. The last tournament was Paris. We came out of that tournament. They had a couple of weeks off while the other girls were training. And then they were reintegrated back into the environment. Because I knew them, because I always was already coaching them, that was made a lot easier. And then we also had Richie coming in as an assistant coach with Pete and, and Rich Ashfield and Peter Baguette that we allowed us to, to kind of put a really good, seamless program in place for, for, for those girls. You mentioned something about like having, um, you know, expertise on the ground at home. Like, mm -hmm. so, and that is something that the U.S. sort of amateur scene doesn't have. Yeah. Um, because if we look at, um, not, not, I wouldn't say Australia um, because the fixture, the Super W is sort of brand new. Um, but even, but even then, um, those, the women that, compete for the, the provincial sides in the Super W, and then you go down in uh, New Zealand with the Farrah Palmer Cup, and then um, you have Interpros in Ireland, and then um, specifically more so in, in, in England and not in Scotland and Wales, and also in um, France with the, what is, I think they've made it the top 12 thing. It was top eight, and they added four teams. But you have these, um, you have professional coaches, like, for these semi, I guess, semi-pro clubs where, yeah. you know, you go to Harlequin's women, you go to Wasp's ladies, or you go to Saracen's women, and not only do they have a full-time head coach, um, but they have a full-time strength and conditioning coach, or they share um, strength and conditioning staff with the, with the men's team, so they have full-time support. Um, like full-on expertise, which I think is, you know, something we don't have here just because of the way the rugby environment sort of is. Yeah, I think, and again, I think that that, that is kind of looking at 
how we can improve that before. You know, I have some quite strong opinions and thoughts on that and how we could do that. Um, and that might be a conversation for another time. But I think that the, the MLR clubs and um, training facilities that have been kind of brought that we can then offer expertise to the WPL clubs. We can offer expertise to bring in young coaches on board and do internships and mentorships. But then we can then put them with with the those uh, with those WPL clubs in on the ground. They can work then with the national staff and kind of have a whole development pathway. So you're all sharing this expertise because ultimately I don't just want the men's US team to be successful. I want the women's team to be successful, both in sevens and fifteens. So we should all be sharing that pool of knowledge, similar to how it works in almost in like New Zealand where. Yeah, everyone is working towards the common goal of making the New Zealand national teams better. But that's at all levels of the game. So I firmly believe that that's something we're going to do. And we're going to do that in San Diego with our with our new uh, training facility that we'll, we'll open up to the WPR club here, which is the, the surfers. And, and we'll offer that, that strength and conditioning expertise to those girls because it is vitally important that, that that may have a direct correlation maybe not on this world cup but on the next cycle of girls coming through and working with the high schoolers that, that i've had contact with here in san diego already and i think that's that's vitally important that we do that and you know you can't always wait for the national governing body to make a make the the kind of hit and you know they've got their own issues i think what we can do is support it from the ground up and you know, and if we start to do that, then we can start to work with the, the national governing body as, as we as we go through, and let them take care of the top stuff, and you know, we'll kind of bridge that gap for them. Yeah, it's it's been um, it's pretty interesting to see, like as the I guess the older I get, um, how sort of um, we miss some things because, like, a long time ago. Um, I mean, on I think on the women's side, uh, you probably still what he calls the NASCs, the national whatever. Basically, you had pro, what were effectively provincial teams coming in yeah. to compete against each other, and that would um, lead into new selections for the women's national team um, and the men's. I guess what they used to call. Uh, the interterritorial tournament, which is when territorial unions existed, I think there were six yeah. at the time, and you had a tournament of six different a round robin tournament um, over, I think, about a two week period, and that was how they selected the men's eagles. And you saw um, when that was how they selected the men's eagles, and not just based on you saw sort of a performance correlation, and then when the when the, I guess the, um, when the, the interterritorial cup was still going on in the early 2000s, but the focus went to the NA4 and the Churchill Cup stuff. And I think you saw a negative correlation with sort of the performance because you lost, um, it, you lost that support at a, a more regional level because yeah. the, governing body was like, eh, we're, we're not reliant on uh, players in this system anymore. And now um, there is no longer investment at what are now the 
the geographic unions, but basically the, the old territorial system, there is no investment in coaching staffs for a senior 15, uh, whether it's just a coach um, to, to lead a select side or even, you know, strength and conditioning. So you're missing sort of a, a, a development piece in the puzzle for the moment. I think as MLR's roots get dug in more, um, you're not really worried about that, but there is that that before MLR came along, before I guess pro rugby came along, um, we just ejected this provincial system that yeah. could have supported the Eagles since you know still more than half the Eagles at the time were amateur players, you know. So I think um, so. Now let's get into you know you've uh, successfully won a championship with the Seattle Seawolves um, under Richie Walker uh, in 2019. So you guys, I know you guys got up there a bit late because they're uh, for like a week, Richie was the inter for like a week. Richie was hired as an assistant and then he was the interim head coach. And then they found out that Anton Molman's visa was denied that was like in a week period of time, and then he became the head coach, and then you went up there to, to be the SNC coach for for the Seattle Seawolves. What was like sort of that experience? A, because you sh- you showed up late when the players were already practicing pretty much, right? So yeah. how do you how do you jump? How do you parachute into that environment where I guess it says they they were a player led club the season before, um, and then how do you? Um, support uh, guys what what guys are already doing, and then knowing that the season was you know a sixteen, they're they're it basically it, it, the season doubled. So what was expected of them um, from the season before was extremely different because I think it was like an eight game season over eleven weeks the previous year to a yeah. sixteen. Um, game season over 20 weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do you parachute into the environment where a, a player-led environment really, and then support what guys are already doing while also, you know, adding some extra, you know, spice? Yeah, yeah, I think I did have a bit of spice going with that. Um, I think, well, one, I think the, the key factor is that uh, Richie and I were, were already talking before he kind of accepted the role. So um, I we actually met, we were watching, I think we were watching Colorado versus San Diego here at Torero Stadium. So we were talking about, if, you know, what would happen? Would I be interested? So I already had some uh, a little background on, on what was going to happen there. Um, and then um, I'd met the team manager, so I knew the dynamic, like Kevin Finn, another absolute legend of American rugby and the president of Seattle Rugby Club. I have to give him a mention because if it wasn't him, I don't think we would have achieved half the things we could have achieved with Seattle. Um, but going in there, uh, having worked with Richie before, we knew what we wanted to do. So we wanted to take these guys on the journey of, you know, the most important end of the season is that championship season. So we did that championship for the last five games of the season were really important to us. So we kind of earmarked that as being the most important time. And the early season, it was about embedding our, our values on the team, the way we wanted to play, uh, building the relationships with the players and staff that, that existed there, and kind of really understanding where we wanted to take these players. So 
Now, I spent the first couple of weeks literally just observing a lot and asking a lot of questions of the senior players that were there, guys like Matt Turner, uh, Rickert, and, uh, and, and Brad Tucker, and trying to get a real understanding for Lyme as well, just getting a real understanding of what they were about, what they wanted to do. Um, and then painted a picture to them and said, hey, guys, this is, this is how I work. This is what we want to achieve with you. Um, this is what you'll get from me. So you'll get hard work. You, um, I'll back you all the way, that kind of thing. I feel strong work ethic. And I expect the same back. Um, and I'm going to challenge you. So, and then we kind of went on this journey and I told the players that we'll be working hard in the early part of the season. So we were coming off games and yet we were still training as hard as it was pre-season in the early part of the season, and we, you know, we lost a couple of games, and we just in house we just knew what we were wanting to achieve. We knew that at the right time we would hit our peak. And towards, and I've told the players the last five weeks of the season are most important. That's when we'll strip right back. And we went into the last five weeks of the season, and including the the championship, hit, where we were training literally once a week. The rest of the time, we were allowing the players to recover well. We were allowing the players to kind of mentally decompress and then building them back up going into going into the weekend. And, and that worked. And it worked because it was a, it, it was a sprint, effectively. Um, and then I think that's a very different scenario to going into to a new MLR season that the MLR has now grown again. So it's getting harder to, to do that. Um, but... It takes a lot of hard work and it, it takes a lot of balls to, to say what you're going to do and actually deliver on it. And I remember the, the, the owners coming up to us and, and saying, oh, you know, we, we've lost it the weekend. What do you think? How's this going? Why aren't we doing more? And I said, trust us. At the right time, we'll deliver for you. And I remember shaking uh, <laughs> shaking Adrian's hand on the on the field after we won the championship. I said, I told you. Said, and, and the players believed in us, what we were doing. And that was the biggest thing. We spent more time making, you know, talking to the players, building those relationships, building the trust element up, and just allowing them to express themselves on the field. And we were just refining what they were doing. And we didn't overcoach them, you know, that we just allowed them to do what they do best. And that is, you know, they got a very good group of players up there and they just performed every single week because they were in a good mental state. Um and you know, going into a new kind of club and a new scenario, it's going to be very different. Um, but some of them remain the same about building relationships and not overcoaching, not doing too much too soon. Um, you know, it could have been very easy for me to just pull a hand grenade, chuck it in, and go right. It's my way or the highway. That wouldn't have worked. I think. I think with San Diego, you you, in a sense, I wouldn't say lucky, um, but there is for a variety of environmental factors, there is a different structure. Um, they've had an SNC coach um, involved every season, and they they are a coach and player-led program, whereas just because of things, I mean, visas and whatnot, uh, the, the Seawolves have been a player-led program so jumping in and changing things and throwing in a grenade is going to be very difficult if you if you you know want to win games right whereas if, if the environment of where san diego is they've had a coach they have you know uh 
a strong locker room culture that is player led with uh, you know JP Peters Peterson, uh, JP Duplessis, um, Patty Ryan. A couple, I guess now a couple of years ago, it seemed it's yeah. you know crazy that it was almost it's almost two seasons ago that you know Patty Ryan was there and. You know, you and you have Ma Nonu and coming back this year. So you have a very strong player culture, but you also have a a coach led program um layer layered on top of that. So it's it's a bit of a different environment. Um really. Yeah. I think the uh, talking to 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 Zach and, and Scott, you know, they they want to give the players more responsibility. And I think that in the modern game, that's certainly the way to go about things. With the players, obviously, depending on the players you have in your environment. San Diego uh, are very lucky in that aspect that we have a lot of experience to call upon within the playing group. And I think we'd be, it would be silly not to kind of use that in the right way. Um, so we're empowering the players more, allowing them to take more responsibility. And it's, it's an open communication process with with San Diego and we are, we're, not, we're not coaching at the moment so it's easy for me to sit here and say oh it's very player led and it's going to be all all kind of butterflies and, and, and sunshine but it's it's not it's not necessarily you want to create an environment where you have an open book an open form of communication allow players to bring things to you you can go to players with things and allowing that conversation to flow naturally and build up you know in to build up a, a program that allows players to grow, but allows coaches to grow. Um, and who's to say that, you know, certainly coming off COVID, like players are taking responsibility for their own kind of uh, own direction. And it's nice. To, and I want to see what, how players react to that. It's no good a player sat there at the moment going, well, I can't do anything. Players have no excuses now. They can go out and run. They can go out and do home base workouts if they can't get to a gym. You, know, you can't. Hey man, I've, I've, uh, you know, I've you know, a squat rack in my house. I'm I'm gonna, oh. I think that's a real big, you know, this is, this is a really key window for us to see how players grow and take responsibility for their own performance. And those coach led programs or heavy coach led programs, I think, you know, that. They don't. They can ease back a little bit because it should be about the players. And rugby is always about the players. You wrote. I say as a coach, yeah, I, I didn't win the title with Seattle. The, the players won it, and I was lucky enough to, to 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 be there and run on water and celebrate. I think that's 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 the thing. It's it's about the players, and you're only as good as a coach. You're only as good as the cattle you get. So it's great. I always say it's great when you look at the All Blacks and everyone goes, oh, they're really, oh, they're amazing. They're well coached and they're this and that. Like, well, how about let's take Italy. Italy were a really well coached. They're not as good as players, but they, they still, they do perform in games. That's a real hard gig. You know, it's hard. To, you have to coach. You have to really coach the Italian-based players. The All Blacks, you go in there and they're coaching themselves pretty much. And Steve Hansen and, and, and his group of coaches were there and woke up. They have to just kind of mold them and put them on the field. Interesting because I've had some nerdy um, analytics uh, conversations with Ben Darwin, um, the former uh, Wallaby prop, now turned analytics guru, who has developed something called the cohesion matrix. And then um, one of the 
another data set called TWI. And we sort of had some discussions and about like what um, you can, there's a, a really metric based uh, podcast called the rugby ruckus that has him on it, where he talks yeah. about sort of the structure of Australian rugby and what should be and what has previously worked just based on data. And not necessarily, and based on performance data, and not necessarily based on the other factors that are going into the future of Australian rugby. And I've, I, and I've told him, it was like, you know, I don't, I'm not gonna, I don't have any of your data, and I'm not gonna be able to develop a data set that creates a, a good argument because my argument for why Australian rugby should be structured a certain way versus why Heath is completely separate from sort of on the field stuff because I look at um, in, in a general sense, like national teams are very important. I understand that, but professional rugby is professional rugby for a commercial basis. Whereas you have in the pro 14 and this and super rugby, this it's hard. I mean, if I look at the way things are a non-commercial basis that feeds into a commercial basis, like the, yeah. The, the Super Rugby's built to have players fit and upskilled so that they can show up to training camp for the Wallabies, the Springboks, um, the the Pumas, the All Blacks. And that's the same sort of way with um, the Pro 14, whereas I'm an American and I come from an American culture and I say, well, if, if you're going to have a pro competition, it is about that professional team and yeah, the national team sits above it. So you need to figure out what the difference is cohesion. And I, and I look at this through an NFL lens because baseball doesn't make sense. Pure, like it, it doesn't because the Marlins, um, you know, won a, a world series shortly after um, they became an expansion team. Same yeah. with, um, same with the Arizona diamondbacks here, like three years after. So like developing the level of cohesion, um, to win a world series is I would say is with the right coaching staff, with the right personnel manager is much easier to do than say win an NFL title in a short period of time. Heck. And I was looking at, and I looked at the Western force, right. And cohesion. Cause one of the biggest things for him is like cohesion and the ability to have having more teams creates less cohesion. So the reality is, is because the Eagles are all far flung. Yeah. Um, right. Is that the, you're only going to be able to create internal cohesion. So that means like Gary Gold right now, um, if if you're thinking about it, he he probably had to select for 2027, provided he sticks around, I hope. Um, and it's not really a question of whether he wants to or not. I think he is, but um, there's other stuff going on in USA rugby at the point at the moment. But right. So like he has to he had to if he's planning this out. He's select. He was selecting for 2023, you know, in 2019, in 20, you know, late 2018, early 2019, before like it wasn't even, you know, we're here to win games at the 2019 Rugby World Cup. But if you're thinking long term, you have to build a squad and get get them blooded in and experienced for seven years away because you're going to have a huge selection base, right? So guys are just going to miss like, cause they're, they're just, because you can't select the national team from like 18 teams. Right. So uh, it's just tough, but 
you look at you look at that right and it's like so well the western force should have been left alone but they shouldn't have added the rebels three years later because then you because if you look at the nfl it takes an expansion team 20 years to basically become a playoff contender consistently you know like um the Texans yeah. being a, a good example or being the best or the Carolina Panthers being another example, but, or, and then you have the Browns who have always been the Browns. And, and this is what I had to, I had to say is like, there's always going to be a dog and don't, you can't cut a team from a competition because they're the dog. No, that's just my opinion. But, um, and it was, it's just interesting to see like what the arguments are for structures of professional competitions. And I think we totally went the wrong way into what we were, what we were discussing. But what I wanted to talk about next is sort of, you know, you're coming into this environment, but you're going to deal with players that um, because of the way, because of COVID. Yeah. Um, a few of them are going to have some game time in like Australia and New Zealand, but most are coming in cold. Yeah, I think you know, we were having a conversation yesterday as a coaching group uh, about what what's going to be our most important thing uh, going into going into to preseason when we when we actually get uh, our hands on players, and it wasn't. It wasn't about oh we gotta get them fit or we gotta get them. It was like let's reintegrate them back into rugby as safely and as quickly as possible. Like this is a rugby ball, very simple. Like the elements of rugby, like catch, pass, uh, the tackle technique, the contact elements of it, and really preparing those players for those those elements again, and almost going back to basics. Um, yes, of course, you want to get them fit and, and, and that, but I think the most important thing is going to be the rugby because at the moment, they're not really rugby players. By the time the league starts again, it could be almost a year since they last played. So uh, the most important piece is going to be the reintegration to rugby in a safe and effective way. Um, and then obviously, then what can we do between now and that point when we get them back in for pre-season? What, what can we do and support them remotely? And I was speaking to a good friend of mine who's a, a, a mental skills coach. He's actually based in the University of Washington. And he was saying, you know, you've got to keep the players just at arm's length, just enough where they're far, far enough away, but close enough that you can pull them back in when the, t- when the time is to get going again. Um, so we're going to be supporting our players remotely through, you know, uh, whether it's S&C work, whether it's regular Zoom calls with with, with individuals, um, whether it's team Zooms, that kind of thing, and just really support them and create that kind of togetherness now and build that up as we go through the next next couple of months uh, when we do get them back into pre-season, that we don't necessarily have to get to know each other again and then we can really concentrate on the reintegration back to rugby uh, hopefully they come in running fit with some of the programs that we're putting together for them in that, and then just take them on the journey again and hope that we get, hope that we do get enough preparation time so that we can hit game one in a, in a, in a good space. And I was speaking to a, a couple of, a uh, couple of coaches around the league and saying that we should be sharing a lot of that information as well, because we want a good product on the field. 
the MLR is only going to be successful if there's a really good product on the field from the get-go after this. So the first round of games, need, well, the first two, three weekends, needs to be exciting games. It needs to be high level of skill. You want to see players kind of enjoying themselves again and, and being excited about playing. And we all have a responsibility to, to do that. So, you know, I think it's important that we, you know, not, not share all our secrets, but certainly kind of look at ways of how we're, we're communicating with players and re-engaging them back into, back into the, the MLR environment again. And it's not just local-based players within America. It's also looking at what you know, these overseas players coming back in and managing some of the anxieties that, are, that, that may be kind of lingering around from, from players coming into the States. So it's, uh, again, it's, it's that, that, that jigsaw puzzle is, uh, is big and it's about kind of getting those right pieces in, in, in place. So one of the things I wanted to talk about, um, which I mentioned, I guess an hour ago, now that we've been just <laughs> hammering, this is great. Uh, I'm just loving it. And, and it is sort of pathway development on yeah. the individual level because obviously you're a professional, um, you know, SNC human performance person for an MLR team. So you can't exactly be hired out um, by, um, you know, a 16 year old's parents. But just sort of like looking generically at what. Um, you know, I guess elite youth players or players that are talented trying to become elite youth players, sort of that SNC pathway that what they can start with when it comes to, um, you know, power development, speed development. I think, uh, I, I think it, at the younger level, they work on speed development a lot and where we still today, because for as much many gains has been made in strength and conditioning for youth athletes, you still sort of have this, I would say old wives tale caution stuff BS where saying that kids growth plates are going to, you know, shut off if, if they start squatting too heavy or whatnot. And I think, you know, if, if you look at gymnastics, I mean, your kids, you've, you've children in gymnastics, yeah. right? So it's just, so like the reason why they're small is not necessarily because they're, they're squatting, you know, like they're like the reason why gymnasts are small is in a sense that I remember I had a, a former girlfriend way back in the day is she, she was at like towards the elite level of high school when we were in high school. And it's like, they're training 24 hours a week at a very like some like the tip the point like these 16 year olds that are trying to you know make the olympic team at 17 they're training 24 30 hours a week so in a sense i would say their body's not recovering to allow them to grow like that's what i think is going on and that's why some gymnasts do have a growth spurt afterwards yeah i think it's um, well, yeah, my daughter she's 10 and involved in the welsh development uh, process and seeing what she's gone through since the age of three when she first started, but I think first and foremost, like youth, youth athletic development is a specialist field. So it's no good a guy or a family or a child going to uh, their S&C friend who works for Michigan football or whoever and going, oh, can you teach Joe how to, how to get fit, big and strong? Can you give him a program? 
and he goes, well, you know, do the same as what these these college boys are doing. It's not about that. It's it's a very specialist area, and there's so much science, and there's so much information that's available out there that, you know, and the kids and the parents want to get the bar on their back, and they want to be lifting weights like they see everyone else do. But so when you get a, a child in, and you say, okay, right, let's look at, uh, can you hold a plank? Can you get into a good body, uh, just a body weight squat position? Can you kind of stand on one leg? Can you raise your arms above your head? Looking at kind of like fundamental movement patterns of squash, lunge, twist, pull, push, um, and and the stability around their joints and and that it's you know, people don't want they don't want they don't want that they want the flashy stuff right at the end seeing what the guys do on TV and it's such an exact science and it's something that we have a responsibility here uh, here in in the MLR to develop our pathways. And to put those strong structures in place, it's not just the rugby, it's how these kids develop. So if you are going through, you know, we'll look at growth and maturation as an example, uh, where we'll do something called peak height velocity. So we'll measure uh, the height of the, of, of the child at, at, uh, seated and then we'll measure the, the height of the child standing. Now we'll come up with an equation and see where his, where his growth is. And look at kind of if he is going through a growth spurt, do we need to pull back? If he's not, there's a magic window we can put more into them. And it's about then how they take on information. So we have a responsibility to put something like that together for our pathway system. Um, and what I will say is that then we're certainly going to be looking at doing that with San Diego. We're lucky we'll have our own training facility and we'll run that program out to our to our community. But it's important that any kind of parent listening, any child listening, that they do want that kind of information, go and seek out the experts in that particular area. So go, you know, if they need to contact me, they can contact me. If they need to go and contact somebody else within their area, who specializes in youth strength and conditioning? Who, who, who are the top people? And there's some really, really good research out there, some really strong experts, far better than me, that I talk to and you know we want to put a well-rounded holistic program in place to develop this uh this this child or the the, the teenager into a, an elite athlete or more importantly give them the tools so that they can realize their potential you know they may not make it to the elite level but what we're doing we're laying the foundations for athletic success in the future whatever that looks like it might be just getting on your bike on a weekend and 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 or playing some park footy but you're laying the foundations of that age for them to be successful in whatever athletic path they choose i look at there's a there's a friend of mine um who um runs a supplement company mm-hmm. interest great great guy um he's also I, I say he could also be controversial but and he's a bodybuilder himself but he's an exos level three trainer his name is mark lobliner and uh he has three young children and his children um go th- like went through a gated development cycle when it comes to strength and conditioning yeah. um and his daughter i mean she's like as strong as me so that's kind of like embarrassing um, from personally, but I mean, his daughter, like, is you know, is one of those, like, is a talented soccer player. They moved to a new town just this last year, and she, like, like, she joined, um, and it's the Tennessee high school season right now for women's yeah. soccer. And 
if I believe him, she showed up like when it comes to physical development, I mean, physical development, I know that she's probably far and away, like in a completely different phase than most 14 year old girls are, but it's like, she was better than half the girls that were already on the team. I was like, you're funny, Mark, but it's just interesting. But you see, you know, guys like that who like are educated doing SNC for their children. And then you, and then, the, then they're public about it and you have all the insane people come after them. And it's like, Hey, um, I am highly educated, you know, strength coach. And I'm trying to, I, and I got myself educated specifically because I know how to train. I'm bodybuilder, blah, blah, blah. But I got myself educated so that I could train my kids. Like that was literally cause he's a, he owns a supplement company and he does, you know, millions of dollars of business a week. And, but he wanted to be able to train his kids because it is a specialist field and there aren't that many. No, they're not. And it, well, I would say anybody an SNC coach get into youth sport because it's much needed. And one of the, the big things, the passions I have is to aid young coaches in that and to work with young, obviously with my, with my own kids, but, with other, you know, with youth athletes, that I was lucky to that I made, you know, I managed to play rugby to a reasonable level because I was good at rugby, not because I, you know, my body was in no way, shape, or form like it wasn't able to withstand that. But I want to be able to put kids in and make and bring them through a program, um, and it's good youth athletic development takes time. You know, you've got to keep kind of, you know, as I say, you've got to put all the big rocks in place and then put the sand in. Um, and that takes time. It's not like hitting a magic bullet going, okay, we get the child into the gym three, four times a week and all of a sudden they're going to be good at their sport. It, it, it doesn't work like that. And, you know, we have to take in so many considerations and particularly nowadays there's so many other distractions for, for the child and it's, it's not just on how they train; it's how they, uh, how they, uh, what they put into their bodies from a nutritional point of view. Uh, it's sleep. So you know they're 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 the big rocks. They don't cost any money. You know, is your child sleeping and eating the right things? Um, not necessarily. Not are they doing the right exercise in the gym? There's several exercises to get the same result, but are they doing everything else? And it's it's not only educating the child; it's educating their support network, so their coaches. Uh, their parents, uh, their grandparents, or you know, whoever their carers. I think it's we have it's a responsibility to share that information, be really open about it, and it's something that certainly at the at the MLR level, our level, we're in San Diego, we're really kind of building that that pathway up with the help of Zach and the, and, and the other people involved. That our pathway is only going to be uh, successful if we get the right people in place the right seat was on the bus and you know we're, we're putting that together and, and it's something that you know i'm quite passionate about sharing that information across the across the league as well is that if we are going to have a pathway model can't just be about oh we've got a pathway model because we're going out and we've got kids teams playing each other well how are you developing the next generation of professional athletes you know we getting these guys in at 14 15 16 and actually developing them holistically Again, as I said earlier, from the technical, tactical, physical, and the mental. Because then you'll have an athlete who's able to cope with the demands of the game and then be able to to step up and and, and play 
professional rugby at the MLR level and then hopefully on to the Eagles. And that translates then back into the Eagles pathway and how we can support that and so on and so forth. So it's uh, it's a bigger piece and it's down to the likes of myself and others around the around the league and outside of the league to, to start working with each other, sharing information and actually getting what's right for for our programs and putting it into place because we're going to be reliant. It can't just be me. We're going to be reliant on all the other community coaches doing the same thing. And if we're not educating them, it doesn't work. So I guess the, the next step is sort of what along pathway that I wanted to discuss is sort of like senior age grades. So under twenties and U 23s, cause you, the U S runs a U 23 program, formerly college all Americans. Now we're calling it, um, I think I had a conversation with someone about like rebranding this. And I said, well, if you were going, if you're going to get rid of the stuff, I would say then you can make, call them the under twenties and you can call them the under 18s. If you're trying to be standardized with, um, you know, world rugby, whatever. But I think the under 23 should still be the college all Americans. So that's a, a marketing sort of thing, but they didn't listen to me and it's called the <laughs> U 23s now. Um, and, uh, but so like when a kid goes to college, mm. um, depending on where they go to school, because there yeah. aren't that many rugby no. programs where they have dedicated S and C staff, no. you know, what, what are the things that a, an athlete has to do on their own from an S and C perspective, if they're a high level player because you have high level players going to all sorts of different colleges because you know, well, going to a rugby school may not be the best diploma that you can have. No. So, first and foremost, like if I was my advice to any if they're going to college is to seek out their the the S and C staff there, either in their program or from the other athletes from the other sports. And, and go in and have a conversation with them, see if you can get in front of them, work with the athletic director. But then if you're not getting the answers from them and you're really struggling with that, then reach out if you're an age-grade youth, uh, uh, say, or working in that pathway, reach out to your MLR club. Luckily, we all have websites now, we're all on social media, and actually say, can I? Can you put me in contact with the S&C coach? I'm interested in a... You know, Talking SSC, gaining a program, just having a conversation. And it's something that we're encouraging at San Diego that you know, I'm accessible. Um, and I think that has to be the right way for that player. That if they're, say, they're going to, I don't know, say San Diego State and they're looking, oh, I need a rugby program, I need something, they can actually contact us. Similarly, all over America. And I think that there's, we have to do a better job of putting that information out there. But Definitely go and talk to the, the college SNC staff, just knocking on doors, emails, phone calls, work with the athletic director, work with your coaches. Um, and then similar, another good, there's a couple of good sites that you can go to to gain information, uh, whether it's Rugby Renegade, uh, whether it's the... On a, Rugby Renegade does a... Um, I haven't listened to it in a long time, but they do a really good S&C podcast. Yeah, they do. Good friends of mine run that, guys I was at university with. Um, and then you've obviously got the likes of, uh, of, of the, the, the Athlete Collective here in the US, which is starting to really do a good job of supporting not only MLR and Eagle players, men and women, 
but also the the college athletes, and that's going to be a really good. Uh, it's going to be interesting. Plug yeah. in the athlete collective. Yeah. Oh my God. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to I'm going to torch those those two Yahoo's I work with. Be like, hey, <laughs> and uh, Steinberg. But no, I think you know, really good people involved in that. And again, it's not just S and C. You have S and C kind of expertise there, but you also have good coaching expertise. You have player expertise, um, and you know, if a child, a kid can go and talk to them, that's great. And also a young developing athlete can go and speak to them. It's great if they can't get anywhere with their MLR team. So there is starting to become some good information become available. But I keep saying it again that we have to do a better job of getting the information in front of the right people and making it accessible. And it shouldn't always be a, a behind a paywall. Like we should be doing more. So one of the initiatives we have here in San Diego is to have an open door policy where we're going to talk to all our pathway uh, players and their support networks. And we're going to provide strength and conditioning. We're going to provide nutrition and we're going to put information out there. And that's going to be freely available initially and just bring them in and engage in. Cause again, we have not everyone can afford it. So I think it's, it's vitally important that we put the, the info out there. So I, I think that was, uh, I, I think that's like really important because one of the things you see is um, sort of the, the age grade guys, some of these kids disappear when they come through and, and it's not just because of um, them going to another sport because, and I talked to a bunch of people, like I, I'm tracking a few kids that, you know, if they don't go to the NFL, we, we uh, uh, MLR coach would be stupid not to just bring them in because you're talking about elite athletes that would just disappear from the game. Cause there was, there was these, there was this pair of locally, there was this pair of high school American um, They would, I would say internationally where they would project more at the loose forward level. Cause they're, I think they're, they might be done growing, but they're like six, four and they're monsters yeah. and they're both playing division one football right now. And it would be, and I think we've done a poor job of like maintaining connection with those players. But I was like, you know, the league's still around in two years and those two dudes don't get drafted. Right. There were high level rugby players in high school. Um, they're, they're still going to be high level rugby players, but I think I talked to Alex Magleby about this, but he's like, well, um, well, what happens, you know, they're still gonna be. They're still rugby players. So if you can get that connection, and you can like, if you can get them back, yeah, enough. If you can get them back to the game to where they they just they show up for training, where you can get them in training camp, you're gonna have a high level rugby player. It may take them a little bit. I mean, it took it took Paul Asike a little bit, right? Yeah. But look at where he is now. You yeah. know, so I think I think that's I think that's that is about how well your coaching is and your coaching team. Yeah. You've got to coach the shit out of them. It's no good us sat there going, oh, he's no good. Well, clearly, yeah. he's an athlete. Yeah. He's got potential and we he's had an experience of rugby. And I agree with Mike Friday on this. Let them go and have a high school education or college education on a scholarship in football. But in high school, they play rugby. They understand the game. Yeah. They have to reintegrate I them talk I talked to Dave Clancy, the now now head coach up at uh, UCLA, about mm -hmm. like crossover athletes and then just being able to pull in guys. And, and the one of the things is like you know when guys go to college and they play rugby 
or they played a different sport, but then they stopped and then they, the, the rugby club is, and he's like, you know, it's my job to make sure that whatever we're doing here as a program is not a step down from what they did in high school. No, because that, that is, I would say you have a lot of talented rugby players that go to college that show up to rugby practice and leave very fast because the environment is a step down Mm -hmm. from what they were in high school. Because most of what high school rugby, I would say it's high performance based. Like we're talking like club level. It's not like when you're playing as a senior in high school, whether it's rugby, whatever sport, that is not rec sports. Um, Like you're, you're, you're training to try and win games and like, especially now because MLR exists, you know, I talked to college coaches about this is that, well, college rugby now is in a space where it is preparing young men for the workforce yeah. because there is a professional outlet. Yeah. And that is a way, that is a way that you can market your program to your school. If you're not getting the resource to be like, well, college exists to educate young men and women for the workforce. Hey, now we have a professional league in rugby. So it's here to prepare young men for the work here and prepare young men for the workforce. How do we, we need more resources. How do we figure this out? Yeah. And so like, those like the college programs, the MLR working with those college programs to support what they do. And I know Dave's doing a, doing a good job up in LA and, you know, I speak to him regularly and I think that's one of the things that we have, we have to do. We have to, again, cross pollinate, go and share information, go and you know, not just sit behind in our little castle. We have to get out there and, and work with these college programs so that, you know, instead of asking players to submit videos and all us watching videos for the draft, we should already be identified two or three or three kids that are playing in those college programs. Um, and it's important that we start to support them because they're not all well funded, as we know. So it's a, again it's about pooling all our resources together and and growing this, I keep hearing the word grow the game in the US, but actually the game is already here, it's already grown. We now need to, to go and move it forward. It's like make it successful, make yeah. it a legitimate uh, a legitimate sport here in the States. Not grow it, it's already grown. <laughs> what we need to do is now professionalize it, get things done. So, we talk about so. And then, so I, I think that sort of gets into like most of the rugby stuff. Cause we could probably talk, I think the first time we talked to it was about an hour or so um, <laughs> that was months ago, but I, I think, you know, we'd probably come back and, and, you know, after this next season sort of do a debrief on, you know, your experience being with an MLR team from day one of preseason yeah. through a season and how you support the athletic development and then sort of maintaining performance um, throughout that that see the quick season because it is a quick season. It's you know it's yeah. like, um, and then you know supporting guys that do get selected for the national team, making sure they're fit coming out of the season, um, and whatever you have to do. But now let's get into some fun stuff. So you're a triple Cortado guy. So yeah. where where in San Diego do you find a triple Cortado? <laughs> yeah, Abby Gutierrez will uh, will be able to verify this. It's Bird Rock. Uh, okay, okay. See that? So, like, um, the, you know, I, I was interviewing. I forget who it was that was on the women's sevens team, and I was like, "So you guys all go to Bird Rock? Where did the guys get coffee? Like, because yeah. the the guys never like talk about the guy men's sevens team never talks about coffee. 
No, like, the coffee culture in the women's uh, women's program is uh, is very strong, and uh, I was fortunate to come in, into it. I'm a big coffee person myself, but at that time we had uh, Ryan Carlisle, Lev Kalter, Nicole Heveland, Chester Ember, like all big coffee kind of connoisseurs. So it was great. And I just where's the best coffee shops? It's Hawthorne Coffee, it's Bird Rock, it's James. Um, and we're lucky in San Diego. There's so many good ones, but yeah. Bird Rock is a, is a firm favourite, and um, and then now there's a, a bit of a, a bit of a competition going on between uh, myself and Sam Uching about uh, the, the coffee. He seems to be a bit of a coffee uh, aficionado. So uh, <laughs> to, uh, and there's a big coffee culture in our in in the Legion. So yeah, wherever we are in the in the world, I mean, Phil Mack, from uh, in Seattle, he enjoyed a, a vanilla latte, which wasn't wasn't so popular. But I'm thinking about starting up a little MLR kind of. I think I think vanilla lattes is the one thing that Starbucks cannot screw up. Because... <laughs> right. so, yeah, right. it was. Um, there's, there's, yeah, good coffee culture, mate, and uh, yeah, Bird Rock is uh, is top of the list. I'm a. Um, I, I don't have an espresso maker in my house, but I'm I'm very like single origin bean guy, and oh, fr- like uh, pour overs usually kind of yeah. Saturdays because you can't. It's, yeah, it's hard to make a lot, you know, with a pour over, well, but um, like more of a a French press. Uh, guy and I'm getting into single origin then barrel then whiskey barrel aged Ooh, very nice single origin coffee like um, it that's uh some good stuff but um I guess the the other thing is like uh I can't I don't know if you can see it there's there's a that's not my bike but that's my that's my <laughs> girlfriend's bike my bike's on my wahoo my my road bike's oh, on my cool. wahoo because it's hotter than hell out here um but um so how'd you get into being a like a cyclist, you're a big dude, but like, you, but to the point where you're like, I'm a cycling domestique on my Twitter profile. So I mean, obviously, USA Cycling does a lot of stuff at Chula Vista. Are you? Are do you do anything with them, or are you? Are you? Are, are you Chris Frooms? Are you Chris Frooms? Um, US, um, US guy? No, no. Um, so I know Jamie Staff at US Cycling. Actually, a good, a good guy. Um. But I always, I kind of got into it when I was in Wales and uh, just in my local village, uh, a group of guys that go out cycling. I thought, well, I quite fancy that. So got myself a bike, got the pedals and everything, just literally went out and started to ride with a couple of, couple of, uh, couple of dads effectively. Um, and then we'd go out and cover kind of like, we did like a Friday coffee club, like a 30 mile ride, stop for a coffee. Then it turned into, a midweek ride on a Wednesday, we go and, and go cycle around the coast, 30, 40 miles, stop for a beer. Uh, and then it just grew from there, started our own cycling club, uh, the Ponticlean Flyers for, for our Welsh fans. Um, and it's just grown from there. And uh, I, I really enjoy it. And lucky enough to cycle with uh, Geraint Thomas's uh, father-in-law and meet Geraint a couple of times and, yeah, I'm just a big, a huge fan of uh, of cycling. I've got the utmost respect for anyone that can sit on a saddle and pedal for four to six hours. Never uh, done four. Well, yeah, you know, no, no, I have done four four hours. It was, uh, it was yeah. like I'm a little slow. I think I averaged like seventeen miles per hour. It's like trying to figure out good speed. 
Uh, yeah, I feel like, but then you look at like I, I need to I need to get like really small to be I don't I don't understand like when it comes to cycling be like you know um, when I first I'm not that strong right now but when I first started triathlon I was like squatting 400 pounds and deadlifting 400 pounds like I was pretty strong like this is all like strength stuff so like five three one nothing like not high rep stuff but it was like trying to figure out how to transfer torque. I, I have no idea. Like it, no, there is, there's a limited um, ability to transfer power like that that you yeah. can have in the gym to power on the bike and trying to oh. just. And much of this is like the, some of the reasons why these guys on the tour can do 600 watts is well they've been riding for 10 years. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of that, and um, you know. I've, I was quite lucky. The more I ride, the better you get. And it's just time in the saddle for sure. Uh, lucky in that, like, I used to cycle when I was in Wales, cycle from home down to the Scarlet and then back again. It'd be like 80 miles in a day uh, during pre season. Oh, man. You get, that, you get 80 miles a day. You get like fit. How, I mean, yeah. how, many bib, how many bib shorts did you go through? Jesus. Oh, yeah. Fair few. Um, and then we using we were using the Watt bikes a lot in the UK, and we have we have Watt bikes arriving for the, for the Legion boys. So there's a few of the few of the boys we're going to start to do like one two k time trials and and, and what have you. Hey, hey, the 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 highest end Watt bikes can integrate on Zwift. Um, interestingly, um, Carl Ferns. Yes, I'm going to name drop. I'm going to name drop. Carl Ferns and I are friends on Zwift. Yes, that's He's the, Zwift is gonna like after after add you because we're starting to do some stuff around around that and have a bit of fun with it and I think yeah I just really enjoy cycling it's good for the mental health um and I have a coffee bike here in San Diego where me and uh, my wife Sarah will will just pedal around the local coffee shops and bars uh, on our single speed bikes and just yeah I just enjoy pedaling it's, it's better than like, I don't want to go into gym and lift four or five times a week. I don't, that doesn't stimulate me. It doesn't, doesn't get, doesn't get me going there. I'd rather get out on my bike and, uh, and get into the fresh air and oh, I still get in the gym, but yeah, the bike is like nothing else I've ever done. Love I think, it. Uh, yeah. I think uh, one of the things like when I, when I started, I was still playing rugby when I started doing triathlon, like wh- one of the things I, I started to get into is that, uh, it's interesting how many, uh, former rugby players actually, uh, are triathletes and like one of the ones that I follow obviously is like Welsh international Shane Williams, who is yeah. a freaking beast. Like I, I that, that guy's fast. Like, yeah, like, I take my heart. It's like, it's funny. A lot of the, the ex rugby players and, and coaches, like they all cycle. And I think more so is the fact that you can get on a bike, you can get out, you can pedal for 10 miles, you can be out of the city, you can be on the coast, you can be wherever you want to be. You're just getting away from it, but you still can be slightly competitive with it. Yeah. It really hurt the body. It's a bit of a mental challenge as well. And I think it's it's surprising how well, once you start, you're kind of into it and you like, then it just becomes like this thing just takes over your life and it's. Uh, it's really enjoyable, and like people that are into it, they like, they look at you kind of. Funny, oh man, like when it's. Uh... But you never see a happy, uh, never see a happy runner, Aaron. So I always say, oh, that. dude, I... they're not happy. 
I run a lot. Um, so I can say that um, it's more, I, I ran used to upwards of 20 miles a week when I was in the army. So like, it's just, if I'm not, it, I'll be honest. If, if when you get old, I mean, you know this. Like, from when you get old, when you st- if you stop working out, I mean, you know this better than I do because you're not as old. It, you, maybe, maybe, maybe playing rugby is like le- less <laughs> strenuous than being in the army. I used to say, I was in the army. I was like, you know what? I'm pretty sure. And this is you can probably look at this like playing professional sports. Like, I'm not gonna say it's like dog years because I think it's more. That, but I was like, I was pretty sure a year in the army was like eight years of like the back end of your life. So I was like, if you spend 20 years in the army and like I didn't, I spent five. So I was like, that's 40 years. It's just, it's like now I'm like 70. (laughs) But yeah, once you, I I think a lot of like you see this like professional athletes a lot. And it's like, once you stop working out, your body actually falls apart. Yeah. It's not. It's not like, hey, you know, I'm done. You know, I can just lay it. I can lay it down and chill. It's like, it's interesting. I found out is like when I, you know, if I really chill, like on what I've been doing, like if I just stopped running, um, I just start picking up niggles. Um, if I stop lifting, I, I start picking up like other injuries. Mm. It's very interesting to to see like all you actually just can't, you can't stop training. You can train at much less intensities than you used to because you don't need to. Right. But if you just stop cold Turkey, you just like things start, I wouldn't say start falling apart, but you know, like just things happen. Yeah. And you need to maintain your kind of mental wellness. And I think that's a huge part of it is that, Oh man, I would say, so I think the gym is a huge, huge part of mental wellness because I I noticed this. So they closed the gym here, like trying to get weights was like impossible right away. Like everything was sold out everywhere really fast. It was, it was pretty wild and it took, you know, months. And then I finally found a company that, um, actually is, they have a, um, business to customer service, but they're mostly B2B and it's called, uh, it's called Beaver Fit, but they have a, a sub brand called Gray Man Gear and Beaver Fit does a lot of, they're starting to do colleges, like building out um, yeah, racks. There's a couple of, a uh, couple of gyms back home that use Beaver Fit equipment. Yeah. The, and so like they're starting to do colleges and I think I'm, I think they might, I need to look at Beaver Fit UK. Might, they might have done Scarlet's gym for all I know, but yeah, um, yeah, I know the company had done that, <laughs> but uh, they, they've done a few pro teams yeah. um, overseas and it's like, but they, like they had some weights and I was talking to a rep because most, a lot of the reps in the U S are like military people. Cause they yeah. have a ton of military contracts. And he was like, no, we just got some stuff in. Um, I can see. And he's like, yeah, we got 45s. In. And I was like, Boom. Got some 45s, got some 25s and trying to get, but trying to get smaller weights right now, like tens and tens and fives has been impossible. Impossible. I think, I think I finally got an order in that is going to be fulfilled on tens and fives, but I have to, but I have to wait like two weeks, which is annoying, but yeah, it's just, it's just interesting, you know, like, and then the gym opened up. And I like, 
This was back in June, and I lifted for three straight weeks, and I was just feeling better. Just feeling like, you know. And then then it closed again, and I was like, all right, fuck. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, eh, no, we're, I'm, I'm, you know what? Told my, to my girlfriend, Brooke, I was like, um, we're getting weights. Yeah. And so I got, so I finally, I got the weights and then I had a squat rack on order from like one July on Amazon. Cause it was just cheap at the time. And, but no one else was selling anything, whether it was pre-orders or not. And then I had, it was on order for five weeks. And then I looked at rogue and they were taking pre-orders. Mm-hmm. So they would basically, you get in the queue and they build. And that's how there, there's nothing for sale. You're just get, you're putting an order in. And so I got, and then my squat rack came in last week, had to also cut off a foot because it was too tall for my garage. <laughs> but yeah. And, and I would say quality of life, you know, since having, you know, weights in my house, as far as like just the gym is concerned, I think it's really helpful for athletes and, and non-athletes. I, I don't, I think yeah, everyone should train really. So. The public, mate. Exercise is, uh, keeps you young, keeps you mentally, uh, mentally fit. And, uh, obviously it's good. It's good for you physically. So, so well, uh, I didn't know how long this would go and we're at, uh, <laughs> we're at, we're at about two hours and 10 minutes here. Well, uh, Ian, um, thank you for your time. And, uh, you. you know, whenever the MLR season does kick off, Good luck and uh, talk to you soon. No, good man. Appreciate your time. It's good yep. to chat. It's chat soon. This has been Lineouts by Earful of Dirt. Connect with Earful of Dirt online. We're on Facebook and Twitter at Earful of Dirt. You can email us at earfulofdirt at gmail.com or call and leave us a voicemail at 720-600-2679. For Aaron, Dan, and Victor, I'm Corey. Thanks for listening.